Section thirteen of History of Egypt, Volume two, by Gaston Maspero. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter two, The Memphite Empire, Part one. At that time, the Majesty of King Huni died, and the Majesty of King Snofru arose to be a sovereign benefactor over this whole earth. All that we know of him is contained in one sentence. He fought against the nomads of Sinai constructed fortresses to protect the eastern frontier of the delta, and made for himself a tomb in the form of a pyramid. The almost uninhabited country which connects Africa with Asia is flanked towards the south by two chains of hills, which unite at right angles, and together form the so-called Gebel et Ti. This country is a tableland, gently inclined from south to north, bare, sombre, covered with flint shingle and siliceous rocks, and breaking out at frequent intervals into low chalky hills, seamed with wadis, the largest of which, that of El Arish, having drained all the others into itself, opens into the Mediterranean halfway between Pelusium and Gaza. Torrents of rain are not infrequent in winter and spring, but the small quantity of water which they furnish is quickly evaporated, and barely keeps alive the meagre vegetation in the bottom of the valleys. Sometimes, after months of absolute drought, a tempest breaks over the more elevated parts of the desert. The wind rises suddenly in squall-like blasts. Thick clouds, born one not knows whence, are riven by lightning to the incessant accompaniment of thunder. It would seem as if the heavens had broken up and were crashing down upon the mountains. In a few moments streams of muddy water rushing down the ravines, through the gullies and along the slightest depressions, hurry to the low grounds, and meeting there in a foaming concourse, follow the fall of the land. A few minutes later, and the space between one hillside and the other is occupied by a deep river, flowing with terrible velocity and irresistible force. At the end of eight or ten hours the air becomes clear, the wind falls, the rain ceases, the hastily formed river dwindles, and for lack of supply is exhausted. The inundation comes to an end almost as quickly as it began. In a short time nothing remains of it but some shallow pools scattered in the hollows, or here and there small streamlets which rapidly dry up. The flood, however, accelerated by its acquired velocity, continues to descend towards the sea. The devastated flanks of the hills, their torn and corroded bases, the accumulated masses of shingle left by the eddies, the long lines of rocks and sand, mark its route and bear evidence everywhere of its power. The inhabitants, taught by experience, avoid a sojourn in places where tempests have once occurred. It is in vain that the sky is serene above them and the sun shines overhead. They always fear that at the moment in which danger seems least likely to threaten them, the torrent, taking its origin some twenty leagues off, may be on its headlong way to surprise them. And, indeed, it comes so suddenly and so violently that nothing in its course can escape it. Men and beasts, before there is time to fly, often even before they are aware of its approach, are swept away and pitilessly destroyed. The Egyptians applied to the entire country the characteristic epithet of Toshuit, the land of emptiness, the land of aridity. They divided it into various districts, the upper and lower Tonu, Aya, Kaduma. They called its inhabitants Hiru Shaitu, the lords of the sands, Nomiu, Shaitu, the rovers of the sands, and they associated them with the Amu, that is to say, with a race which we recognize as Semitic. The type of these barbarians, indeed, 
reminds one of the Semitic massive head, aquiline nose, retreating forehead, long beard, thick and not infrequently crisp hair. They went barefoot, and the monuments represent them as girt with a short kilt, though they also wore the abaya. Their arms were those commonly used by the Egyptians, the bow, lance, club, knife, battle-axe, and shield. They possessed great flocks of goats or sheep, but the horse and camel were unknown to them, as well as to their African neighbors. They lived chiefly upon the milk of their flocks and the fruit of the date-palm. A section of them tilled the soil. Settled around springs or wells, they managed by industrious labor to cultivate moderately sized but fertile fields, flourishing orchards, groups of palms, fig and olive trees, and vines. In spite of all this, their resources were insufficient, and their position would have been precarious if they had not been able to supplement their stock of provisions from Egypt or southern Syria. They bartered at the frontier markets their honey, wool, gums, manna, and small quantities of charcoal for the products of local manufacture, but especially for wheat, or the cereals of which they stood in need. The sight of the riches gathered together in the eastern plain, from Tanis to Bubastis, excited their pillaging instincts, and awoke in them an irrepressible covetousness. The Egyptian annals make mention of their incursions at the very commencement of history, and they maintained that even the gods had to take steps to protect themselves from them. The gulf of Suez and the mountainous rampart of Gebel Ganefa in the south, and the marshes of Pelusium on the north, protected almost completely the eastern boundary of the delta but the Wadi Tumulat laid open the heart of the country to the invaders. The pharaohs of the divine dynasties in the first place, and then those of the human dynasties, had fortified this natural opening, some say by a continuous wall, others by a line of military posts, flanked on the one side by the waters of the gulf. Snofru restored or constructed several castles in this district, which perpetuated his name for a long time after his death. These had the square or rectangular form of the towers, whose ruins are still to be seen on the banks of the Nile. Standing night and day upon the battlements, the sentinels kept a strict lookout over the desert, ready to give alarm at the slightest suspicious movement. The marauders took advantage of any inequality in the ground to approach unperceived, and they were often successful in getting through the lines. They scattered themselves over the country, surprised a village or two, bore off such women and children as they could lay their hands on, took possession of herds of animals, and without carrying their depredations further, hastened to regain their solitudes before information of their exploits could have reached the garrison. If their expeditions became numerous, the general of the eastern marshes, or the pharaoh himself, at the head of a small army, started on a campaign of reprisals against them. The marauders did not wait to be attacked, but betook themselves to refuges constructed by them beforehand at certain points in their territory. They erected here and there, on the crest of some steep hill, or at the confluence of several wadis, stone towers put together without mortar, and rounded at the top like so many beehives, in unequal groups of three, ten, or thirty. Here they massed themselves as well as they could, and defended the position with the greatest obstinacy, in the hope that their assailants, from the lack of water and provisions, would soon be forced to retreat. Elsewhere they possessed fortified doors, where not only their families but also their herds could find a refuge, circular or oval enclosures, surrounded by low walls of massive rough stones crowned by a thick rampart, made of branches of acacia interlaced with thorny bushes, the tents or huts being ranged behind, 
while in the centre was an empty space for the cattle. These primitive fortresses were strong enough to overawe nomads. Regular troops made short work of them. The Egyptians took them by assault, overturned them, cut down the fruit trees, burned the crops, and retreated in security, after having destroyed everything in their march. Each of their campaigns, which hardly lasted more than a few days, secured the tranquillity of the frontier for some years. To the south of Gebel at Ti, and cut off from it almost completely by a moat of wadis, a triangular group of mountains known as Sinai thrusts a wedge-shaped spur into the Red Sea, forcing back its waters to the right and left into two narrow gulfs, that of Akaba and that of Suez. Gebel Katharine stands up from the centre and overlooks the whole peninsula. A sinuous chain detaches itself from it and ends at Gebel Serbel, at some distance to the northwest. Another trends to the south, and after attaining in Gebel Um Shomer an elevation equal to that of Gebel Katharine, gradually diminishes in height, and plunges into the sea at Ras Mohammed. A complicated system of gorges and valleys, Wadi Nazba, Wadi Kid, Wadi Hebron, Wadi Baba, furrows the country and holds it as in a network of unequal meshes. Wadi Farin contains the most fertile oasis in the peninsula. A never-failing stream waters it for about two or three miles of its length. Quite a little forest of palms enlivens both banks, somewhat meagre and thin, it is true, but intermingled with acacias, tamarisks, nebecas, carob trees, and willows. Birds sing amid their branches, sheep wander in the pastures, while the huts of the inhabitants peep out at intervals from among the trees. Valleys and plains, even in some places the slopes of the hills, are sparsely covered with those delicate aromatic herbs which affect a stony soil. Their life is a perpetual struggle against the sun, scorched, dried up, to all appearance dead, and so friable that they crumble to pieces in the fingers when one attempts to gather them. The spring rains annually infuse into them new life, and bestow upon them, almost before one's eyes, a green and perfumed youth of some day's duration. The summits of the hills remain always naked, and no vegetation softens the ruggedness of their outlines, or the glare of their colouring. The core of the peninsula is hewn, as it were, out of a block of granite, in which white, rose-colour, brown, or black predominate, according to the quantities of felspar, quartz, or oxides of iron, which the rocks contain. Towards the north, the masses of sandstone which join on to Gebel at T assume all possible shades of red and grey, from a delicate lilac-neutral tint to dark purple. The tones of colour, although placed crudely side by side, represent nothing jarring nor offensive to the eye. The sun floods all and blends them in his light. The Cyanatic Peninsula is at intervals swept, like the desert to the east of Egypt, by terrible tempests which denude its mountains and transform its wadis into so many ephemeral torrents. The Manitu, who frequented this region from the dawn of history, did not differ much from the lords of the sands. They were of the same type, had the same costume, the same arms, the same nomadic instincts, and, in districts where soil permitted it, made similar brief efforts to cultivate it. They worshipped a god and a goddess whom the Egyptians identified with Horus and Hathor, one of these appeared to represent the light, perhaps the sun, the other the heavens. They had discovered at an early period, in the sides of the hills, rich metalliferous veins, and strata, bearing precious stones. From these they learned to extract iron, oxides of copper and manganese, and turquoises, which they exported to the delta. 
the fame of their riches, carried to the banks of the Nile, excited the cupidity of the pharaohs. Expeditions started from different points of the valley, swept down upon the peninsula, and established themselves by main force in the midst of the districts where the mines lay. These were situated to the northwest, in the region of sandstone, between the western branch of Gebel et Ti and the Gulf of Suez. They were collectively called Mafkait, the country of turquoises, a fact which accounts for the application of the local epithet, Lady of Mafkait, to Hathor. The earliest district explored, that which the Egyptians first attacked, was separated from the coast by a narrow plain and a single range of hills. The produce of the mines could be thence transported to the sea in a few hours without difficulty. Pharaoh's laborers called this region the district of Baifk, the mine par excellence, or of Bebit, the country of grottoes, from the numerous tunnels which their predecessors had made there. The name Wadi Magara, Valley of the Cavern, by which the site is now designated, is simply an Arabic translation of the old Egyptian word. The Monitu did not accept this usurpation of their rights without a struggle, and the Egyptians who came to work among them had either to purchase their forbearance by a tribute, or to hold themselves always in readiness to repulse the assaults of the Monitu by force of arms. Though Siri had already taken steps to ensure the safety of the turquoise-seekers at their work, Snofru was not, therefore, the first pharaoh who passed that way, but none of his predecessors had left so many traces of his presence as he did in this out-of-the-way corner of the empire. There may still be seen, on the northwest slope of the Wadi Magara, the bas-relief which one of his lieutenants engraved there in memory of a victory gained over the Monitu. A Bedouin sheikh fallen on his knees prays for mercy with suppliant gesture, but the pharaoh has already seized him by his long hair, and brandishes above his head a white stone mace, to fell him with a single blow. End of section 13. Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.